Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Listen in as former Chiefs of Staff for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senator Al Franken come together to give an update on the current political landscape. Policy Directors Brian McGuire and Drew Lipman discuss their forecasts for 2018, the impact of Hillary Clinton's book, lessons learned from 2016, and what might lie ahead for 2020. Welcome to the Brownstein Political Update Podcast. Today I'm joined by two folks from the Brownstein team, which I'll introduce. Drew Littman, Policy Director, previously served as Senator Al Franken's Chief of Staff, where he led a staff of more than 30 and spearheaded all legislation, policy, and press initiatives. Before that, he served in the office of Senator Barbara Boxer four of those years as Policy Director. Immediately before joining Brownstein this year, Drew served as Senior Counselor to Health and Human Services Secretary uh, Sylvia Burwell. Also, Brian McGuire. Brian, as a policy director, was most recently Senator Mitch McConnell's chief of staff where he advised on strategic communications, politics, and policy. Before that, he served for eight years in a variety of senior communication roles in Senator McConnell's Senate Leadership Office. Outside of McConnell's office, Brian consulted for NRSC during Jeff Flake's 2012 election and as speechwriter for the Secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development under the Bush administration. His writing has appeared in publications including the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Time, USA Today, and Politico, and of course the Brownstein Podcast. <laughs> so we appreciate both of you here, both of you being part of the Brownstein team. It shows the, the breadth of experiences that we have here. And today we just want to kind of, here we are, you know, fall is, is here and uh, winter is approaching and uh, election year next year. What's the lay of the land? I mean, you got Republicans in control of the House and the Senate right now. What's the sense of will they control that next year? How are they doing now? Who wants to take? I'll, I'll let Drew take the shot first. Okay. Uh, uh, as a as a Democrat, give me your thoughts. What you well, thinking there? I think we'd all stipulate that we can't know exactly what the conditions will be a Tomorrow. year or so from now. <laughs> but assuming that assuming that the elections were sooner, I think the biggest political news in terms of campaigns and elections. Uh, recently was not in Washington. Last week, although little noticed, um, there were a couple of state legislative races, and Democrats flipped a seat in Oklahoma and flipped a seat in New Hampshire. Actually, two seats in Oklahoma uh, before and one last couple weeks ago. Right. Three so seats in less than three weeks. Right. Um, flipping Republican seats, and one of those Republican seats, I think, had been Republican since the 80s. That's right. Um, if you look at state legislative races more broadly, and that's a larger sample than the congressional special elections, all of which occurred because Trump plucked out a conservative to serve in his administration. If you look at the state specials, Democrats have flipped six Republican seats. Republicans have only flipped one Democratic seat. And if you combine the state specials with the congressional specials and average, what you see nationwide is Democrats running on average 15 points ahead of Hillary Clinton 10 points ahead of Obama in 2012. For Democrats, that's promising. Is an, that's my opening bid. There we go. Brian, you get to ante up. Sure. <laughs> um, I'll talk about the federal races. And um, Republicans are have a built-in advantage in the Senate, a clear advantage when it comes to making forecasts for 2018 based on the simple fact that they're defending 25 – or the Democrats are defending 25 seats mm-hmm. and Republicans are defending nine including one in Alabama where there will be a runoff uh, in a week um, from where we are today. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So they have a built-in advantage just based and on what the map looks like. The Democrat ones are at, at uh, Trump won states. Is ten, that correct? Ten states the Democrats are defending are in states that Trump won. Five of those are in states that he won by double digits. Some states by considerably more than double mm-hmm. than you know ten, um, like. Uh, Minnesota, or North Dakota, rather, where he won by 36 points and where Heidi Heitkamp is defending her seat. So <clears throat> that's a really tough map for Democrats, um, but it was a really tough map for Republicans in 2014, or 16, rather, and um, everybody thought the Democrats were going to pull out that, and they didn't. Mm-hmm. So I think that Republicans are not cocky about their map because they saw what happened in the last cycle. And if you ask some Republicans, they think that it's actually going to be a defensive year for them, just historically based on the fact that in midterms, the party of the president um, traditionally loses uh, significant numbers in the House and about four seats in the Senate. So um, one way to look at the map is that there's a built-in cushion for Republicans, but that they're vulnerable in two states in particular, Nevada and Arizona, and those two states could end up being the firewall for Republicans in the Senate. What do you – you both, you know, you're – besides all the policy work you do, all the efforts you do within the Brownstein team, you're also – because you got to understand this, this political environment every day, so you're always watching it. Do you think um, this this – Activity now where public is still a lot of angst, right? It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. They're just kind of frustrated. There's a lot of non-action and then there's kind of once in a while something peaks and then nothing happens. Who does that help or hurt? And it's hard to – like I said, 2018 in the world of politics is many lifetimes away. But who does this – does it – does it hurt the whole group or is this one of those places where someone might come out of the blue in some of these races and just clean the clocks? What's yeah, politically thing? I think we have a test case on that question in the past week. Um, when when the public is frustrated by Congress's inability in a broad to sense, advance yeah. anything and if and if you if you say that that's equivalent to people being agitated with yeah, Washington. Yeah, I would, yeah. Then the president's overture to Democrats uh, last week on the spending bill um, where he reached across the aisle and worked with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer to uh, both pass a spending bill, a debt limit increase, and negotiate on uh, immigration. His poll numbers, according to a a Wall Street Journal poll that came out today, have gone up markedly. Um, Several polls showed two to three point margin increase. The conclusion that the pollsters have drawn is that that – benefits the president, what that suggests to me is that the angst that the public is feeling at the moment can be um, an opportunity for someone like Trump, who in some cases identi- some cases in his life is identified as a Democrat and some as a Republican. <laughs> it's an opportunity for somebody to, to step up and say, I'm neither. I'm neither. I'm like Trump in the sense of both sides I can work yep. with. I'm willing to do something that Republicans have not been willing to do in the past, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he's been rewarded for it in the polls. Right, and by all accounts, he's pleased by the fact that his poll numbers. Yeah, he have likes gone up uh, as a he likes those. <laughs> I think I think when it comes to frustration, uh, frustration with a newly elected president, the lack of results, it's not a new problem. Our government's almost structurally designed to frustrate people. Bill Clinton ran as a change candidate in '92. The public was so dissatisfied with the pace of change that in his first midterm, Democrats lost net 52 seats. Similarly for Obama in his first midterm, another change candidate, Democrats lost net 63 seats. So I think what we see is voters tend to take it out on the party of the newly elected president 
Almost regardless, George W. Bush was different because it was the first post-9-11 election, mm -hmm. different set of variables. But historically, going back at least to Franklin Roosevelt, it's, it's a party wins the presidency. There are high expectations, a lot of promises, high expectations. No one ever delivers on those expectations, and that president's party gets whacked in the midterms. So that would be the most likely place for, for voters to take out their frustration. A lot of variables, though, associated with that. Let me take up where you mentioned, you know, we talk a lot because the business we do in D.C. is around Washington, D.C., but another chunk of the business that Brownstein does is around states mm -hmm. and state legislative actions, state policy, regulation. And so there is kind of a, a you know, we like to, and you made the point, Drew, we, we monitor kind of what's going on also around states. Do you think this legislative equation that you mentioned, is that a trend or is that just an angst that, again, people say, oh, that's election happening right now, so I'm going to go deal with that because it's someone I know where these federal ones, like the Georgia 6, which I think I can't remember how much my millions yeah. were spent in that special election. But in these local races, and I say local state legislative races, there's smaller amounts of money, there are fewer people, more localized. Do you think people are just kind of is that a trend line or is that a response or is is there something else happening here? And I guess well, I'll take – because you, you mentioned the data and then maybe back to you, Brian. Great question. And I won't really pretend to know the answer. But the trend is pronounced enough across races, across the country in very different states that it seems like Democrats have the enthusiasm advantage now. And again, a lot of reasons why that could change. But if – conditions remain the same, I think that's probably a nationwide trend. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that yields in terms of Democratic victory. On the federal level, it may be just... Well, if you're pulling if you're pulling a level for a Democrat mm -hmm. at the top of the ticket, you're more likely, of course, to pull Democratic lever down the ticket. Right. You know, you're from Alaska, which is mm -hmm. an unusual state in terms of voters looking at candidates independently. Right. But but elsewhere, um, people tend increasingly to vote straight line. ticket. Yeah. Right. Yeah, is there a trend I, happening I'm not, there? Or I'm is not it ready to conclude or to infer from state or local um, races that these federal races are going to reflect the same trends that Drew was talking about. I think the fundamental problem that Democrats have right now is the fact that um, of the 676 or so counties that President Obama won twice, Trump uh, won about a third of them, mm -hmm. and of the counties that Obama won once, uh, Trump won almost all of them. I think Hillary Clinton won 13 mm -hmm, of 209. Mm -hmm. So what that suggests to me is they have a serious crossover problem in these federal races. And um, I see that they're trying to remedy that with messaging. I'm not sure that the messaging that they've put forward so far is going to do the trick. Um, they've got a real problem in appealing to these districts that Obama was able to win, but that Clinton wasn't. And I think that that problem is going to persist in 18 for them. And um, maybe this trend that Drew has identified is a is a canary in the coal mine. But um, on the federal level, I just I just don't see it yet. Let me ask this question. I've heard from some of my uh, Democratic friends that you know uh, Hillary Hillary Clinton has come out with the book, and some of the friends that I've talked to said it's too soon for her to be out there. Let the politics kind of work the way they are now. Too soon. Any you know is that is that a, a fair argument? And the reason why I say that because as soon as she usually says something, the president gets agitated mm -hmm. or pronouncing his statements. Is that uh, you know? It's almost like do we need that in the mix while we're trying to do all this other stuff? 
But is it, it you know, some presidents like, you know, in the case of President Obama, he's been very careful of his mm-hmm. movements. Bush did the same thing. Candidates also have seen that in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, they're very cautious after an election not to kind of jump too early. Is it too early or is it just the way it's politics – is that your thinking? Yeah, I, I can't think of a single person other than people who are on her paid staff who uh-huh. thinks it's smart of her to be out there talking about this race. It doesn't help the candidates. I mean, she lost in embarrassing fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, does it disrupt the – and I guess from your end, Drew, does it disrupt the politics of Democrats because – it's a force to be reckoned with, yeah. right? I mean, it's no matter the media picks it up right away. Right? I'm actually a third of the way into the book, which means I'm the only person in Washington with an opinion who's actually reading the book, <laughs> right? Because most people, most people have formulated their opi- opinions by publication. You're, you're day, definitely day, a policy drop, wonk, right? So, <laughs> and the book is is um, what I've read so far. It's really fairly innocuous. I think. The circumstances were extremely strange. She did win the popular vote by 3 million or 2.9 million and yet lose the presidency. I can't blame her for wanting to tell her story. To the extent it might be disruptive, better to have it out now, have the process mm-hmm. now, have her do the tour now. Uh, kind of clear the deck. In a year. Yeah, clear the deck, exactly. It'll be mm-hmm. forgotten a year from now. I think it would be much more difficult if she waited a year. She'd have written a better book probably, but I wouldn't want <laughs> it coming out really deep into the cycle. This, right. is, this is the time to get it get it out there. Do, do you think, talking presidential for a moment here, 2020, seems like everyone's already starting to think about 2020, which is, uh, you know, Maybe I'm biased after spending 22 years in public office and multiple elections that, you know, shorter is better. But it seems like the minute one ends, we're already into it. We're already Mm -hmm. into the 2020 thinking. And we have a lot of senators, at least on the Democratic side, kind of tooling the idea. And some Republicans not necessarily saying they are, but others saying they might be. Does that, in the politics of Washington, are trying to get stuff done, even though that's, you know – in our world, it would be really many lifetimes away. Do you think that's a just – is that just press saying we need to fill time or is it – there's actually these conversations happening and it creates an you – know, what does that do to the public process or the politics? What's going on here? I think that this is a challenge that uh, at least in the Senate, Senate leaders have always had to grapple with, which is uh, how do you manage a conference on the Democrat side or the Republican side? knowing that a significant number of the people in that conference are thinking about positioning right. themselves for the next presidential <laughs> election. This is not a new development. I think I read somewhere that 90 members of the Senate have um, run for president since Kennedy. Right. Um, so this is a perennial issue. It, it may be more pronounced just because of the news cycle being mm-hmm. so intense and so consuming these days. But this is not a problem that is uh, – is new to the Senate, and it's something that these leaders have always had to figure out how to deal with. It's, so it's how to manage that, that ambition. Yeah. Um, you know, w- one way in which it may be different at the moment is, you know, the way in which Democrats are reacting to this particular president because this president is so unusual. Right. And um, <laughs> the sort of the, the snapback right. on the other side, I think, is probably a little bit more pronounced uh-huh. than they'd like than if they were thinking strategically, it should be. Right. Um, There's more an emotional response right. than a strategic response. Right. And, you know, the, the the primary voters on the Democratic side evidently are demanding that mm-hmm. of a lot of these Democrats. And so I think that is a long-term strategy that has carries serious risks, but I can understand, you know, why they would feel they need to uh, 
demonstrate their kind of commitment to mm-hmm. <laughs> that element uh, within I've the party. I've uh, newly elected senators on Senate folkways, Democrats. And one of the things that strikes me here is the lesson of o- Obama's success maybe the wrong lesson, is that you only have to serve two years in the Senate before you run for president, <laughs> which no one would have believed previously oh, except no. for John F. Kennedy. Right. So, Which so, actually, since John F. Kennedy, those 90 people, there's only two that have won, and they're the ones that serve the shortest time. Right. Right. Which is also – it's an interesting that, data well, point. there's a reason for that. Th- th- that's that, that's no a good record. point. And, and, <laughs> and, and I'm concerned that what it, what it tells folks is don't invest too heavily. Use it as a platform – Use it for speech making. Mm. Use it to offer amendments that are never going to pass. Symbolic bills, but but that's inimical to actually getting work done in the Senate. So it causes a challenge to the process of getting big stuff done. Very much so. You got rock star type senators potentially who who aren't going to invest in succeeding in the mm-hmm. Senate, right. where a lot of the work takes place. All the important work, I would argue, takes place really behind the scenes in quiet conversations with folks. Well, I I, I would emphasize that. I think you're right because. When you're, I, I rarely in my time on the Senate went down on the floor and made big old speeches because the work was done, you know, sitting next to someone in a committee room or you're yep. at some event or you're at lunch or you're at the caucus meeting and you're kind of figuring out what to do or you're running into them in the hallway or at the gym or wherever it might be and you're trying to move policy. But if you're in a process of let's just make statements because, you know, Fox or MSNBC or CNN want to cover you for all day long, then that's a different kind of, that's not policy that's just politics exactly and and to extend that point when i went to the senate with franken one thing that was was new for me was how quickly he could raise money online how much money he could raise had to be in exactly the right circumstances right. for the right people who his list would like but he could raise a lot of money very fast and that's even more true with a with an elizabeth warren oh. or a bernie sanders right. so so Nothing wrong with it. It's just the way it is now. But you can ignore the old-fashioned hierarchy. When I came to the Senate the first time with Barbara Boxer, it was important that George Mitchell like her. Right. It was important that Jay Rockefeller like her. She those had relationships. to people over, right. and she had to build relationships right. with them, which you don't do by going on television. Well, you this think is different because now you actually increase the size of your list by going on television. Right. And you think of the ones you gave an example on the Republican side. It might be a Rand Paul or a Ted sure. Cruz that have incredible lists that – I mean, the minute they say something on the floor that's well, the, the more they moment. fight against their own colleagues, the more robust their list is, right. in a sense. So, so you're on both sides. On both sides, yeah, yeah. On both sides. Are it's so, like that's why. That's part of the reason why Bernie has you know seven million followers, and I think Warren is probably next with about three million on on Twitter, on Facebook. But those are huge, huge active lists. Right. So the reward really, the reward used to be you work with the senior guys; they helped you raise money, et cetera. Whatever committee assignments, whatever. Now it's you cultivate your list by fighting with the senior guys, <laughs> and, and that helps ensure your success. That doesn't help the Senate work in the old-fashioned way that I would recognize. Right. Yeah, I agree with uh, that. I, but I would also note that that model has not proved successful in getting these guys elected president. Fair and enough. Right. That's cited a couple examples of people who have used that model yeah. and who went down in. Uh, well, all, when you think about it, all. F- Three of the four we just mentioned because Elizabeth really never ran, but right, she right, right. thought about it. <laughs> and, yeah. yeah, and if you look at Ted Cruz, for example, here's someone who employed that model uh, regularly, regularly <laughs> I in know. the Senate um, <laughs> to the consternation of some of his colleagues, yes. sure. um, but is now a very quiet and yeah. uh, <laughs> diligent member of the team. But, right. but the model um, is, is new. We may still be in this sort of shakeout Cruz phase. It may yet 
prove out. I think this model, I'd say this model is probably less than 10 years old. Yeah. To, to, to me, one of the lessons of 16 is that it's very hard to disassociate yourself from Washington. And th- these guys have tried to do it from within yep. the system, right. and they didn't succeed. And, you know, Elizabeth Warren may prove to be immune to that, but I wouldn't bet on it. Let so maybe add, we shouldn't be talking about senators. Well, I was just going to ask you this question. Let me throw this on the table just as we get to conclusion here a little bit, and that is, so let's assume Trump continues the way, President Trump continues the way he's doing. Maybe there are some Republicans that might run. We know Democrats can run. Is really the people that folks might look to is outside of Washington in this next cycle based on, you know, putting President Trump aside for a moment? Is that where the next crop of – I mean, is this a, a year when, you know, you looked at, uh, you know, George Bush uh, or you look at Clinton or Carter, you know, some of these guys that were all outside of Washington right. in their own way, right? But they ran a race against Washington but also for public good and, you know, Reagan, another example. You know, these are – The way I explain <clears throat> it to people is I believe – this, I started out as a joke. Now it's not a joke. Tom Hanks could get the Democratic nomination and be elected president. <laughs> He'd be up on a stage in the next cycle probably with 15 Democrats like the Republicans had last time. Everybody likes him. He's got that name recognition. He's pre-sold to people. And I think – And he has a positive rating above 50 percent. There you go. <laughs> what, what you could get is potentially a CEO or a non-Washington person – um, note that California is moving up its primary. Right. Right. So, so that's a big prize right at the beginning. And that will reward name ID and the amount of cash you can spend immediately. Maybe that favors someone like Howard Schultz, who's the CEO of Star- Starbucks, mm-hmm. you know, whose success is visible to everybody right away, mm-hmm. or some other um, non-politician politician. I don't know, but I think this this primary date shift. I'm a skeptic on that question. <laughs> yeah. But I it just happened, and you're it did. I right. Think that, I Trump think is that there. Six, I think 16 was a black swan event. I think it was fueled by a variety of factors, one of which um, and I think most importantly of which is the fact that the Democrats put forward a, a profoundly bad candidate in Hillary Clinton. Trump won the nomination with a 36 percent approval rating. And to me, that suggests that this is not a very viable path for somebody who doesn't have the support of the party, doesn't have the support of all the various mechanisms that you would want to get the support of before going into a presidential election. Um, he took care of 16 other candidates, so there are problems on the Republican side too. They would say they they took he took them out. Yeah, <laughs> they won by one methodically. But he is such an unusual yeah. person that I, I just don't think that he's replicable. Will he have competition if he runs? Uh, I think, I think so, and again. I think that competition will um, include people like. You know, a Howard Schultz or a yeah, Mark Zuckerberg yeah. or people who who see him and think that but they can the do Republican the same side, thing. Do you think he'll or will, will uh, the Republican Party galvanize and say this is our nominee? I mean, that's always <clears> a <throat> challenge, right? With a reelect, is Democrats have always had it, Republicans have always had it. I, I think it's safe to assume that the incumbent president is the party's nominee. Nominee at this point, yeah, yeah. at this point. Um, but I do think that the model that he used to win is one that people on both sides at some point in the future will try to adopt, but I don't think we'll be successful at. So let me ask you this and close on this. So we – this is a great discussion, kind of the politics of where is everything at, where is Washington. So if you get to predict something between now and the end of the year in this town with all the public policy going on, the politics, 
What's the prediction you'd give that people might be surprised about? Well, I'm going to go with um, I'm going to go with a list of Trump's legislative accomplishments: raising the debt ceiling without the offsetting cuts that the Freedom Caucus wanted, maybe funding the government without offsetting cuts, maybe eliminating the debt ceiling, protecting Dreamers, putting what will ultimately be hundreds of billions of dollars in social spending into Florida and Texas because of the hurricanes with no offsets. I think um, this would have been a good first legislative year, if it plays out that way, for President Hillary Clinton. And I think people aren't looking at it that way now, but but I think that's part of the reason why Republicans are so avid to pass some health care reform bill. So far, it looks like Democratic priorities, legislatively. Legislatively. I think we've had enough surprises in the last year. (laughs) (laughs) Or every day. (laughs) So I'm not going to predict any others. So you think there'll be a calm next year? I'm going to predict predict serenity. There we go. Well, let me just say say this again to both of you. I appreciate both of you being here. I think from Brownstein's perspective, uh, it has once again proven uh, incredible depth of knowledge and understanding not only of the policy – but of the politics that can drive the policy or negate the policy depending on the day. And uh, you two are, you come with incredible depth and experience. So thank you very much for being here today. And thanks for obviously being part of the Brownstein team. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Mark. Brian. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.